Well, I hope that choir song encouraged you this morning because if you're struggling or you feel like you're under the gun personally or spiritually, you can hear that truth. That God is faithful. That God is there. He will support you. We've talked a lot over the last month about that subject and about difficulty and trial and spiritual attack and how the enemy tries to rob us of our joy and make it seem like the Lord doesn't care what's going on. But this text that we're going to study this morning, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. This text that we're going to look at echoes what the choir just sang. Because it tells us that there are times when we need to testify to ourselves about the goodness and about the provision of God in our lives. We do a lot of telling other people. The choir just encouraged you, I hope. We tell other people about God's faithful, and we pray for them, and we encourage them, and we send them emails. But there are some times that we need to preach a message of encouragement to our own heart and mind. That we need to tell ourselves, God is faithful, and He does give us complete victory over sin and over difficulty. How many know that's true this morning? How many know that God gives victory? We're not just messing around this morning. We're not just saying words to make ourselves feel better so we can go home and have a nice afternoon. This is eternity we're talking about. And Jesus Christ has already won the victory. And we need to continue to tell ourselves that, that He has won the victory. Now, we know the Word teaches us, and we know that the Spirit guides us, but sometimes we're in a situation where we've just got to give ourselves a sermon. Because without that, without that testifying to ourselves, sometimes we can be filled with discouragement, and doubt, and we start to look inwardly, and we start to we start to kind of, oh, I don't know what to do. That's what that song was about that the choir just sang. It's about taking your soul to task. It's about putting the brakes on that kind of careless emotion that spirals downward, and those irrational thoughts that tell you things that aren't true, and that tendency to believe the lies and accusations of the opposition. It's, it's going to say to us, my God has not failed me yet. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to stand in place. I'm going to keep my position. Even though the attack's all around me, I'm going to stay there because God is faithful. Sometimes the most important words that we can say are to ourselves. Because there are times when our mind has to speak to our heart. Emotions are raw. We're feeling frustrated. Fear is gripping us. We're a little bit disturbed. And we need to remember the truth about God and about His promises and about His provision. And our mind needs to say to our heart, because they're two separate entities, but they work together. Our mind needs to say to our soul, hey, come on, snap out of it. Quit being so emotional. Quit being all, all uh, ramped up and all anxious about everything as we talked about last week. And then there are times when our heart needs to speak to our mind. Where we're being very clinical and we're overanalyzing and we're walking by sight instead of by faith and our heart needs to speak words to our mind and say, hey, come on, you got confidence here. You got confidence in Jesus Christ. Come on, get passionate about it again. Come on, you're, you're thinking like a human being. Don't do that. You're an alien. You're one of God's. So the mind speaks to the heart and the heart speaks to the mind. And that is what the psalmist is talking about here. Look at it, starting in verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Everything starts out well in verses 1 to 2, but the tone quickly changes, and he moves downward to a different place, and we realize that he's in a very bad position emotionally. He believes in God, he loves God, he trusts in God, but throughout the day and night, he's just dying from discouragement, and he's dying from despair, and he's hungry for the Lord, but for some reason, he's away from the place of God's presence. This psalm is not written by David, it's written by one of the sons of Korah, Korah was the worship leader. He was the one who, who directed the choir, so to speak, for the people. So this is one of his sons, and he's in ministry, and he's away from the temple in Jerusalem where they always are. At this point, we're not sure why, but we know it's, it, it's a fact. He's away, and it's, it's discouraging him. Somehow he's been separated from the city and from the temple. Some scholars speculate that maybe this was when David was exiled when Absalom, his son, tried to take over and he took a group of people and, and ran. And maybe this son of Korah that wrote Psalm 42 was one of the people that went out. Whatever the case was, he's writing with a very honest emotion and he's saying, I am so deeply sad in my soul. God, I'm not near you. Now, he knows that God's not restricted to a building. He knows that God is present help in time of trouble, but he also recognizes that being away from God's regular dwelling place has kind of put him in this wilderness, literally and spiritually. So he uses very figurative language in verse 1. He says, I'm like a deer that's panning for water. When you're in the wilderness, all you look for is water. All you look for is some form of refreshing because it's dry and hot and there's really no hope as you look around and it's just sand everywhere. So he says, I'm like that deer that's walking along, looking for water, panning in the heat. That's where I am spiritually. My soul thirsts for the Lord. And as I read that over and over again this week, it asked a very important question that I think we all need to ask of ourselves. How often do we thirst for the Lord? Ask that of yourself and your heart and mind this morning. How often do I thirst for the Lord? How often am I marked by a passion to be in the presence of the Lord and to abide there. That really is the key indicator of spiritual health. The more mature we are in the Lord, the more we want to be near Him. The more we know the Lord, the more we never want to be separated from Him in any way. We might think it's just the opposite, that when we're away from Him, we'll get desperate for Him and we'll want to be so close to Him. 
But what happens is when we're away from the Lord, sin starts to grab us and it makes us complacent and indifferent and dull. So it's usually a good point of self-examination to assess whether you constantly desire to be in God's presence or whether you're looking for ways to avoid that confrontation. For the psalmist, he says, I can't wait. Oh, I want to be so quickly back in that place of your presence, back into the temple. And he says, when do I get to go? Because I feel deprived being away. I'm ready. I'm not running from your presence, Lord. I want to run to your presence. I want to be with you. How often is that the cry of your heart? How often do you thirst for the Lord that way? To be in His presence and to be broken and dependent in prayer and to be humbled and teachable before His Word and to be energized and joyful from being together with the body and and serving and and worshiping and and calling on His name and, and just enjoying the presence of His people. Notice in the text that the writer doesn't say, I'm panning after an experience. We've, we've started in Christianity now to call church worship experiences. He doesn't say, oh, I'm panting for a worship experience. If I could just get a comfortable chair and have Starbucks in my hand, oh, I'd pant for that. He doesn't pant for a building. He doesn't pant for a denomination. He doesn't pant for a style of worship. He doesn't pant to be with a group of people that's just his age and works the way he does. He says, the only thing I'm panting for is God. The only thing I'm thirsting for is to be with the Lord. And a heart that thirsts for the Lord is almost always yielded to the Lord and knows the joy of His presence and can't wait to be with Him. Now that's easier when things are good, right? It's easier when everything's rolling along, although sometimes we take it for granted during that. But, but when the crisis hits and we're he- feeling like verses 3 and 4 and there's a sadness and there's despair and there's questions, does that make us more passionate for the Lord or does it just make us frustrated with Him and we start to look for another uh, thing to fill the void? See, trial and difficulty messes with your perspective. And it can cause us to be bitter and to lose hope. The evidence of that, if you look at the psalm and you heard it as we were reading, there's there's this emotional roller coaster that this psalm goes through. Up and down and back and forth. One minute he's got great memories and he knows the Lord is his. And he says, oh Lord, you're so wonderful. And the next minute he's like, I can't do this anymore. I don't know how to do this. And he's crying and he's overwhelmed with doubt and discouragement. And he says, oh, but Lord, you're good. And then he says, oh, but my life's awful. And all oh, their Lord, and all oh, my life's... And he goes back and forth. When emotions get involved and we live by emotion, this is what happens. And in those times, a lot of times, we, we look for somebody to help. Somebody will come around me and support me and, and encourage me. But not only does he not get that, But like Job's so-called friends, he has people around him mocking him and saying, where's your God? If you look at verse 3, you can read that one of two ways. Either there are people that are taunting him and criticizing him, or he's speaking anthropomorphically and he's saying, my tears are taunting me. It doesn't really matter whether it's external or internal. The point is, somebody's saying to him, where's your God? Hey, you're a believer. You love the Lord. You write songs to God. Where is He? You're out in the wilderness. 
You know, that question is always inherent in attacks on our faith. That question will always be there. The accusation that God is not near. The enemy is always pushing that thought with the goal of undermining our belief in God's word and our belief in the faithfulness of his sufficiency. And it's so effective. It's so routine for him and so effective in terms of cutting into our faith that even the disciples fell for it on the boat during the storm on the galley. You remember that story? In fact, turn over just for a second. Mark chapter 4. Keep your place here because we're coming back. Turn over to Mark chapter 4 for a second. I'm going to read this just for a minute because I want want us to see how this attack comes against us. Mark chapter 4, start in verse 35. I'll start reading as you turn. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side, speaking of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, notice the tone here, okay? There's no other way that you can read this without some sort of tone. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We could preach a whole sermon on just that one line, but we won't. And he got up and rebuked the wind, And said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, what's he going to say next? And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now I want you to notice that Jesus is sleeping five feet away. I believe this is the only time we ever see him sleeping in the Bible. We always see him up in the mountains praying while the others are sleeping. We see him sweating blood at Gethsemane while everybody's sleeping. But I believe this is the only time we ever see him sleeping in the Bible. But he's five feet away from them. But in their minds, he could have been in Jericho for how much they thought he cared about them. He's right there, like right where the speaker is. And, and they're fighting the wind and there are other boats and there's this great storm and the waves are crashing and the boats start to fill out and he's, he's sound asleep. He's right there. And yet they wake him up. And with some degree of anger and frustration and resentment and accusation, they say, hey, don't you care? We're about to die. Doesn't it matter to you? You, you, how are you asleep? We're fighting the storm. The boat's going down. These are experienced sailors, but they're panicking. Don't you care? What's wrong with you? I mean, I, I, I'm reading a little in the text, but don't you think that's there a little bit? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Why are you asleep? Come on, help us. We need another hand on deck. The God of the universe is right there with them. He proves that because as soon as he gets up, he goes, knock it off. Everything calms down. It's as placid as anything you can imagine. And he says, I think there's a little pause there as he just kind of looks at them. And they're going, I, I didn't say anything. I don't, that's my, that's, it, was, it was John. <laughs> he, was, 
he was talking smack. I was just, I was trying to, I was trying to turn my best. The God of the universe is right there. But they came to the conclusion, listen now, that he was not really near them. God is always right there with us. But there are times when we say, God's not near. Listen, past experiences of good circumstances are wonderful to remember, but there aren't enough to sustain our confidence like faith does. I've known people over the years who live in the past. They always think back to the good times and they say, well, if we could just go back there and it could be like that, everything would be okay. The psalmist in Psalm 42.4, he remembers the awesome times. Oh, Lord, when we walked and I led the crowd and we went into the temple and we, and we worshiped God. Nothing wrong with that memory. We have services that we remember where we knew the Lord was there and we knew the Lord was encouraging us. 1974, Charlotte, North Carolina, when I gave my life to the Lord in my dad's church. 1984, in Tampa, in a stadium at a Billy Graham crusade where I first started to sense the Lord's calling on my life. A month later, Wheaton College, when I knew for sure there was the calling. 1996, in New York City, the first time I went to Brooklyn Tabernacle. I've never experienced the presence of the Lord like I felt that night. 2010, in this very room, when the church started and we knew that God was working. In the times of despair, just like the psalmist, we think back to those times and we say, oh, encourage my soul now. Get my soul stirred up. Remember the voice of joy and thanksgiving. But as incredible as those times are, they only take us so far in terms of difficulty. Experience is never an adequate trade-off for the word of the Lord and the promises of the Lord and the power of His provision. Because experiences too often are based on emotion. Even good emotion eventually can turn into bad emotion. That's what we see if you look back at Psalm uh, Psalm 42. That's what we see in verses 2 and 3. And as we saw last week, when things turn bad and when fear starts to enter in, we start to list the reasons, put that in quotes, the reasons why we can't trust the Lord. Well, Lord, but, but, but this, and Lord, because of that, and, and Lord, what about this? And God says, uh, am I able to calm the wind and the sea or not? Because this is up for debate at this point. I'm close to you. Do you think I'm near to you? Or are you angry with me and saying, well, Lord, you're not nearby. I'm right here. Are you going to trust in me or not? Because with one word, I can calm all of this. Here are the reasons. Here are the problems. Look back at the text on 42. Here are the problems that the psalmist has. He's separated from the presence of God both literally in terms of his distance from Jerusalem and the temple. He names these places, the Jordan Valley, which is about 30 miles from Jerusalem, Mount Hermon, Mount Mizar, which are about 145 miles away. I don't know if he was literally there, but he feels that distance. So physically and spiritually, he feels isolated from God. Then second, the problem is that he's got personal sadness. That springs out of the first reason, but this guy let it affect him to the point of, tears and despair, even though God had not removed himself from his life. And then we get the trifecta. The third problem is criticism comes, an attack on his faith, creating doubt that God wasn't really close 
and, and didn't care to come close. Now, these problems are very acute. And they're acute to the point that his emotions and his mind are starting to get worked up. And it's so bad that he's on the brink of quitting. How many know that we can never, ever quit in our faith? If you've watched the Olympics this week, you've known that the difference between winning and losing sometimes is a finger length. I was watching the 1500. I haven't watched much, but I was watching the 1500 uh, race for men the other night. And one guy missed qualifying for the finals by 0.01 seconds. And I thought all the years of training, all the years of effort, all the miles he's run, all the shoes he's gone through to get to that moment in London, and he misses qualifying by one one-hundredth of a second. But as I watched the replay, I noticed that right toward the end of the race, he fell back a little bit. He was in fourth. The top four needed to qualify. And he kind of just started to ease up. And I thought, he, he is not fighting the pain like the guy in fifth place who's going to overtake him is. You could see it visibly on the TV. The other guy saw the prize and he kept running and he saw that the enemy, his, his opponent was starting to fade and he pushed forward even though the energy was gone and he was tired and he couldn't do any more. He knew that if he could just run another 10 feet, he could get into the finals. And he did. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That's what Paul says when he says we're like athletes running a race who can't quit not only because of the importance of persevering, but because we're not doing this on our own. Our hope is in the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight, and our strength is in the Lord, and not one of our problems is reason enough to be in despair to the point of not trusting the Lord anymore, because if we do, we're agreeing with the enemy's lie that God isn't big enough to handle our circumstances. And that's unthinkable. And it's why, look at it, we're almost done. It's why the writer starts talking to himself. The Bible is sanctioning you this morning to talk to yourself. He speaks strongly to his soul. He says, listen, why are you disturbed? What are the reasons why your heart is all, is all messed up? You know the living God, not just a God, not just some image or some idol, you know the living God, the one who cares and responds and helps. So he steps back from himself and he preaches himself a sermon. And he says what the choir just sang. Wait a minute. I love that. That's my favorite line of that song. Wait a minute. Stop it. Hold on. Time out. I'm feeling discouraged. Wait a second. I'm not going to let this get to me. I know the living God. Hey, soul, what right do you have to be in turmoil? Why are you churning inside? Why are you acting defeated? I'm not saying we can't have stress and we can't be nervous and we can't struggle with difficulties in life. That would be ridiculous. I'm saying don't be defeated by it. That's what the Word's saying. Don't let it beat you. Come on, soul. Pick it up. Hope in God. Have you ever spoken to yourself in that kind of situation? Where your faith that's mighty and secure, has to speak to a heart that's wavering. I read somebody that called it faith interrogating feeling. What a great sentence that was. I wish I was smart enough to think of things like that. 
where your faith puts feeling under the light like they do in the old spy movies. And they sit you down in a chair and they put you in a light and they say, what do you know? Where were you? And it says, faith is interrogating feeling and saying, hey, wait a second. You think you're so cool? You think you know everything because you fluctuate back and forth? No, let's talk about this from the standpoint of faith. Because soul right now, you're shrinking and trembling and and struggling and your spirit is not right. So you need to come back to the living God and recognize that God is faithful and he will get you through this. Think of it, all the great men and women in the Bible who had to do that who were attacked and accused and criticized and isolated as the enemy tried to dissuade them from trusting in the Lord. Noah, who was called by God, but dealt with the comments and ridicule for 120 years. Skeptics who wondered whether he'd lost his mind and whether he had really heard God right. Joseph, who was betrayed and falsely accused and thrown in jail and neglected, He had to hear the whispers that maybe the Lord was somewhere else and that the Lord had forgotten about him. Elijah, who had a great victory on Carmel and and saw God's provision, but felt alone and isolated and sat in a cave wanting to die because he thought he was all alone in serving God. David, who was unappreciated and devalued by his own family and had to wait for an unholy, selfish king to get out of the way when he had no right being king. And it all seemed completely unfair, and yet he persevered. These are examples of people, I believe, that preached to themselves. That said, listen, soul, don't let the emotion, don't let the attack wear you down. God is faithful, God is holy, God is living, and I've got to turn myself away from the circumstances and the criticism and what man is saying and even speak to myself about my bad mood and my frustration. And I have to look to the Lord because He is always loving and always gracious and always sufficient and always faithful and always merciful. He's always there for me. So why would I get so depressed and so downcast and so fearful? He's faithful. Here's our sermon. Look at what we need to say. Look at verse 5, third line. Why are you in despair, my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Say the next three lines with me. Hope in God. Say it again. Hope in God. That's a sermon in three words. That's a message we need to keep preaching to ourselves when emotions are strong and circumstances hit and we lose focus. Hope in God. Because here's what happens. Look at verse 6. We see him fall back in despair. And he starts to feel discouraged again because he's dozens of miles from the temple. But then he remembers the Lord and how God works. And he knows that even though he's away from God's literal uh, residing place, that, that God's presence is all around him and he can abide in that. And he knows that even though he feels overwhelmed, that the Lord is in control and that his loving kindness will stay with him day and night. But he's not quite done with his emotion. And he goes right back into it. Because sometimes discouragement, sometimes that attack doesn't relent. It's like we have to get our final complaints in, our our last word to God before we're willing to trust. Be careful not to test the patience of the Lord. So he comes back. We didn't read it, but let's look at verse 9. 
He says, God, you're my rock. But even in the same breath, he says, you've forgotten me. Lord, you're my rock, but where are you? Why aren't you here? Why have you allowed my enemies to gain advantage? Why am I being oppressed to the level of feeling like, or maybe it's literal, of having my bones broken? And just like in verse 3, there's an implication in his spirit that God's abandoned him. But he says, wait a second, got to stop. Spirit, you need to be checked now. Don't come to that conclusion because it's not the truth. And verse 10 is almost an exact repeat of verse 5. He asks the same questions. Why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed? Hope in God. And look at the next line. And I will yet praise Him. He knows there's a time that's coming when He's going to be back in the temple. And imagine how much more profound His praise is going to be this time. The next time after He's gone through all of this, when He gets to be back in the presence of God, His praise is going to be effusive and it's going to be passionate and it's going to be loud and He's going to say, Oh God, you proved yourself again. I don't know how you've been after times of trial, but I know after times of trial, when God's brought me out and I've gotten back on my feet and I've gotten to the place where I know God now is working in a fresh way, the praise is so much sweeter. The joy is so much deeper and we come back in the presence of God and we say, oh, none of this, remember last week, none of this is going to last forever. God will come through. Look at the last verse and we'll pray. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. The help of my countenance. Look at the last three words. And my God. This is one of only two times in this text that he calls the Lord my God. And both of them come after he's preached to himself. And I want you to get the implication that the Lord is not just any God. He is our God. The Lord is not just any God. You need to hear this this morning. I need to hear this this morning. He's not just any God. He's our God. He is our God. Say it with me. He is our God. Those four words should quell any emotion and any fear that you have this morning. What is God to you? Not just what is God to the world and what is God to salvation and what is God to the church. What is God to you? Because this is personal. Who is He to you? What are all the things that He has done for you? How has He saved you? How has He redeemed you? How has He forgiven you? How has He changed you? How has He claimed you? How has He equipped you? How has He protected and provided for you? What plans does He have for you? Because if you have trusted in Him as your Savior, then He is your God. And by His grace and mercy alone, because He is your God and He is my God, then we have rights and privileges that He has given to us because He allows us to legitimately Call Him our God. 
We have been given things that we don't deserve. We have been claimed as his own. We have been given a new nature. We have been given his spirit. And he says, I'm giving you thousands of promises. And I'm giving you rights and privileges that you don't deserve. And yet I've done it because I'm merciful and I'm your God. Now that fact that we are his possession changes everything from our perspective. And even though I'm yelling a lot this morning, that fact quiets our soul. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stress. The world is coming unhinged. There are a lot of things to worry about. But our soul gets very quiet when we rest in the Lord And wait patiently for him. I'm not preaching passive aggressive spirituality this morning. I'm not preaching laziness. I'm talking about the absolute calmness and assurance and faith that we have in the one who cares for us and gave himself for us. And who says, I will be faithful to complete the work that I have started in you. And this morning, and this afternoon, and tonight, and tomorrow, you, believer, have the privilege of resting in the secret shelter of the Most High. So when the storms come, and you feel discouraged, and you feel isolated, and you feel uncertain, speak truth to yourself and say, soul, hope in the Lord. Because he's already won the victory. So believer, why are you discouraged? Why are you disturbed? Even if you're in the worst trial this morning, there's going to be a time when you're going to praise him again. His presence will help you. Because he is your God. Let's bow our heads together. Let me just, I know I've talked a lot. You've been patient. You've listened well. But just as your eyes are closed, I feel led. Let me just talk to you just a second more. Maybe this morning you're struggling. Your soul is disquieted and disturbed. This message was for you. You you need his strength this morning. You came here, maybe you don't even know why you came. Maybe you've never been here before, but but you knew you needed something. And then the Lord somehow through this text spoke to you. Your faith needs to be stirred up and you need to be strengthened. Hope in the Lord. If you trust in Him, He is your God. It's personal not just some being up there that kind of watches over us. It's personal. He died for you. He died for your sins. He's redeemed you from the grave. Hope in Him. There is no other hope. There's nothing in our culture, there's nothing in our world that gives us any solid hope. The only hope's in the Lord. Hope in Him.
I want to ask you if that's you this morning. The Spirit of God's been speaking to you. It feels like He was in your kitchen. He He knew exactly what you needed. Nobody's looking. I'm going to ask you just to stand up right where you are. You don't have to come forward. Just stand up right where you are. Say, Paul, I need prayer. I need to acknowledge this morning that I need the Lord's help. I need Him to strengthen me. I need Him to encourage me. I need my soul to be lifted up. God bless those of you that are standing. Times are difficult and the times are short. But He is our very present help in time of trouble. Father, we thank You this morning for Your incredible sufficiency. For the promise of Your presence. For Your strength and Your power over our lives that has already defeated the circumstances that we're all dealing with. Lord, I thank you for those that have stood. Thank you for their honesty in saying, even though it's hard, I've got to acknowledge that I really need that extra help this morning. I need the Lord to be with me. We thank you that we can hope in you, that we can praise you, that we can trust in you with confidence that you will never fail us, you'll never forsake us, you'll never take your eyes off of us. You have secured us forever and forever, and we praise you. Lord, bless us and help us in the days ahead as times get more difficult, times when we need to speak to our soul and say, stop worrying, just trust the Lord. It seems so simple, Lord, but we struggle with it, so help us. And may your spirit empower us and and encourage us and walk alongside us in the days ahead, we pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for who you are and for what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.